0: Operation Confidence proudly presents America's Divisible Heroes' Talk Radio Show. Tune in weekly on Sundays from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Pacific Time with your host, Gonzalo Mackey. Co-host, Air Force veteran Matt Davidson. Announcers, Taylor Marcella and Brooke Gaudete. U.S. Army veteran and entertainment segment host, Charles Whitehead. U.S. Army Veterans and Strategies for host segment host, Dr. Kathy Cash. U.S. Army Veterans and Lifeline for Women Veterans, segment host, Martha Elena Varela. National Director of Faith Services, Chaplain, and Veterans in Recovery, segment host, Anthony Attenborough. And U.S. Air Force Veterans and Incarcerated to Success, segment host, Kevin Lewandowski. For more information or to be a guest on our show, email info at Operation Confidence, America's invisible here.
2: Okay, well, welcome everyone. And thank you for tuning in to Americans Invisible Heroes. Yes, I'm your host, Consuela Mackey, executive director of a grassroots nonprofit organization called Operation Confidence. No, I'm not a veteran, but my heart goes out to our American heroes, especially those who are disabled and have experienced homelessness. For those of you who's new to the show, American Invisible Heroes was established to create a platform for our veterans and their families to be able to share their experiences, heartfelt stories, resources, and challenges. Now, I'm gonna turn the mic over to our board okay. member and announcer, Taylor Marcella.
3: You review the updated she, items on your and screen. And she
2: will introduce our co-host for today. Take it away, Taylor.
3: <laughs> Thank you, Connie. So we have U.S. Air Force Veteran Matt Davison. He is the board vice president. We have U.S. Army Reserve Veteran Charles Whitehead. He is a co-host. We have U.S. Navy Veteran Calvin Poole and his monthly segment, Blinded Veterans, for Blinded Veterans, and last but not least, we have Anne Montague and her monthly segment, The Rosie's Movement. Okay.
2: So Taylor, you know how much we love Matt. Oh, but yeah. Matt is always coming on, just giving his little presentations mm-hmm. and leaving off. But we need to, I need you to tell everybody all over America and throughout the world, <laughs> who is Matt?
3: Well, Matt Davidson served six years in the United States Air Force Security Service as an intercept operator both ground and air from 1956 to 1962. He's more than a veteran, but also a passionate champion for homeless, displaced, and incarcerated Vietnam veterans. He entered the Air Force straight out of high school, went through basic training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. He received technical training at Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi, After receiving his tech training, Matt spent two years overseas at Misawa Air Force Base and Wakanai Detachment in Japan, where he served as a ground and intercept radio operator. He then spent his last year of active duty at Otis Air Force Base in Massachusetts. There, he flew coastal surveillance missions and ran their Mars station. Matt is Operation Confidence Board Vice President and has held executive positions with veteran service organizations, and he belongs to five. The American Legion, AMVETS, Vietnam, Associates of Vietnam Veterans of America, Cold War Veterans Association, and Freedom Through Vigilance Association. Matt recently released his book, Lost and Found, it's sold at Barnes and Noble and Amazon. His presentation today, he will talk about the night John came to visit. It's a story having to do with his work on behalf of veterans incarcerated. Matt, we are so proud of you. Take it away.
2: Well, for her, before he takes it away- <laughs> Yeah, I, want I will
3: to- show it while he's talking, so I'm gonna show this. Gonna well, I wanna just
2: show it now before he starts. Okay. <laughs> There it is. That's the cover of his book, ladies and gentlemen. We want everyone to go out to Barnes and Nobles and Amazon and purchase it. It's Mm -hmm. an amazing book. Proud of you, Matt.
1: Okay. I want to thank you, uh, Consuela. Also, uh, Taylor, thank you very much for the introduction.
3: Uh,
1: As coordinator of the Incarcerated Veterans Transition Program, I was assigned to serve veterans who are uh, imprisoned at uh, federal prisons and uh, help them for achieving successful reentry into society through employment housing health care and then I added one on my own, and that is I wanted to bring in speakers who were who could raise morale and, and make these veterans feel worthwhile and feel good about themselves while they were in prison. And thinking of that, I thought about my old friend, John Fur, And this is called The Night John Came to Visit. Although I had been inside federal correctional institutions at Terminal Island many times, it was always during the day. Coming into the institution at night is surreal, kind of like going to a night baseball game. You could see clear across the north yard, back to where the men were playing basketball and handball. You could see people moving around in their cells. The chaplain who met us at the front entrance escorted John and I into the chapel where the chairs had already been arranged. A podium and live microphone were placed where they belonged and veterans incarcerated were already lining up to sign in for tonight's presentation. In the end, 60 veterans would have signed in and taken a seat. It was February 4th, 1967 when Captain John Fur, along with six other airmen were dispatched in a Douglas EB-66C Sky Warrior over North Vietnam, about 40 miles from the China border in Thai province. The aircraft was hit by two missiles from a mobile tracking station, breaking the aircraft in half. Three of the airmen, including John Furr, were captured. The remains of two others were returned and another was missing. Bleeding from shrapnel wounds and dressed only in shorts and undershirt, John was at the first afraid that the prevailing winds might have taken him to China, from which he would never emerge. Fortunately, that was not the case. Forty-five minutes after the touchdown, John noticed crowds of people tracking him and waving aged rifles. Marched by the militia along paths lined with peasants holding sickles, he came to a building which was the village headman's house where a picture of Uncle Ho hung. John breathed a sigh of relief, realizing that he had not been blown into China after all, chance of war criminal and air pirate filled the air. And for three hours it took until it the truck with John's navigator inside pulled up and drove to the Hanoi. It was February and it was cold. An interrogator called the Eagle came into the room where John was waiting. The Eagle asked John what his unit was was called, and John responded with name, rank, and serial number. He was smacked in the face. The Eagle asked a second time what John's unit was. Again, John replied with his name, rank, and serial number. Again, he was smacked in the face, only harder this time. After a third attempt by the eagle failed, John was handcuffed with his arms stretched out behind him and strapped in such a way that all circulation was cut off. The eagle left the room and John called out, "Okay, I will tell you the name of the unit. The eagle returned, untied John, and when the circulation rushed back, what was your unit, he said. I can't tell you that, John answered. And he was back in the straps again. John later learned that the key to avoiding painful torture was to give false information. But you had to remember what information you gave because the interrogators took notes. B-52 bombing runs from Guam frightened the North Vietnamese captors. They provided some breathing space for John and the other POWs. During this time, while in isolation, John began a prayer ritual. From a small piece of rope, he formed a rosary, which became part of his daily ritual of pacing five steps up and back while praying early in the morning, exercising and praying again. For the North Vietnamese, isolation was a key to breaking down allegiance to your country. For the POWs, communication would be instrumental in maintaining their sanity. A five-by-five alphabet matrix was developed in which communications could be transmitted by tapping on a wall. If the sent message was understood, two taps followed if not understood, a series of taps followed. It was a simple, yes, ingenious way to communicate. On Sundays during four months of solitary, church services began camp wide with a tap on the wall signaling individual recitation of the Lord's Prayer followed by a Pledge of Allegiance while facing east toward the United States. Before sleep, Tapping would spell out, good night, God bless you, actually spelled out G-N-G-B-U. Another way to remain sane was mental exercises, learning aerodynamics or a foreign language were great ways to maximize quiet time. One POW memorized the 350 names of his fellow POW alphabetically. John learned Spanish, French, German, and Russian during his stay. It was important to occupy your mind. Feeding the spirit was also vital. Each religious denomination had a chaplain. John McCain was the Presbyterian chaplain. Every Sunday, there would be church services with an opening prayer, reading of scriptures that were memorized and hymns that were written by a POW and distributed to all who wished to take part. In six years, John was only allowed to see, receive four letters. No packages or photos were ever given him. A solid spiritual life, faith in God, and exercise kept him in balance. In 1973, it was all over. In speaking directly to his captive audience, John reminded them that they had a lot in common. They had saved this nation, accepted their fate, and would move forward in their lives. He reminded the audience that he and they had many parallels in their life experiences, and he reminded them that we were all sacred and made in God's image. One Navy vet happened to have served with the the captain, who John knew quite well. Another vet asked if he was free to talk. John replied, absolutely not. The code was there only to form communications. The questions of one, one-on-one one psychological tactics was raised and John spoke about the interrogators trying to pit one POW against another. After in- interrogation took place, the POW being interrogated tapped out the questions to the other POWs so that they could be prepared with their responses. Asked if the survivors held reunions, John replied that they are held every five years. Many are held in Southern California, but they're also held in Washington, D.C. in a Vietnamese restaurant. If you ask John what he missed most during his captivity, his answer would be the sound of children's laughter. It's ironic that John would become an elementary school teacher, surrounded by the laughter of children every day. In terms of advice to the veterans incarcerated in attendance, John advised them to assert their own individuality, stay strong in the face of adversity, and find the balance between the spiritual and the intellectual in their lives. He urged the men not to get caught up in self-pity, but to realize that there are many who are far worse off. He recalled a moment that he refers to as a miracle when he was bound in such a way that he thought of himself as a basketball, and he remembers a guard picking him up like a basketball and tossing him into the corner of the room In excruciating pain, John said a prayer unto the Blessed Virgin Mary. When he finished, the guard returned, untied John, and left the room. The veterans incarcerated referred to John as a hero, which he quickly dismissed. And every one of the 60 in attendance came up for a handshake, a hug, an autograph. Then one of the prisoners asked if John would lead them in prayer, which he did without hesitation. The veterans at FCI Terminal Island will be speaking about the time when John Fur came to visit for a long time to come. And that's the story of John Fur. Oh, that's such that's a touching, touching story.
2: Wow, yeah. Matt. Well, don't don't know how to respond. That is so so. <laughs> deep. Oh, that's and is that a, a story you have in your book? One of them.
1: That that is one of the stories in the book. The other, there's another one that very interesting also, and it's about um, a World War II Marine Corps veteran who served in the invasion of Iwo Jima. Wow! And. Uh, that was a, a terrible, terrible battle. You're going to be and able to tell
2: us that next time? I'm sorry? You're going to be able to tell us about that next time you come on? Oh,
1: well, that's a pretty long story. But oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe you can shorten it a
2: little bit. But that was so touching what you just read. Golly.
1: Well, Nobody it's...
2: would ever know, you know?
1: It's well, important, I think, I think, to bring in speakers into prisons that can raise morale and,
2: yeah. and
1: identify with the speaker.
2: Sure. Well, you have an extensive track record. Maybe you can bring on some of them that have gone through incarceration and now are back in society and doing well, you think?
3: Hmm.
2: OK, that's a winner. Give my love to Anne and tell her happy, I will mother. do it. happy Mother's Day. Thank
1: you,
2: Connie. Thank you
4: Good so right, much. <laughs> bye, bye. Good bye Take care. Good job, man.
2: Charles, it's on you. Is it on me? Yes, yeah, on you, Charles. All
4: right. About, <laughs> um, uh, Rosie, daughter number one, and
2: yeah,
4: <laughs> man, that's, <laughs> our,
2: that's our girl.
4: All right, with the first half of her mother's story, um being today, you know, she'll finish it, uh, next week. She'll have two parts. Part one will be today and part two will be next Sunday. Okay. Jesse Jacobs was, of course, this is Anne Montague. This is her mother's story. Jesse Jacobs was born in 1918 at the time of two world events, World War One and the global pandemic called the Spanish flu. Um, yeah, I remember uh, talking about that, you know, it's kind of like the This uh, COVID thing is the same thing. Anyway, her father was a carpenter on the C and O Railroad where an accident left him disabled and unable to be employed. When Jesse was 10, the Great Depression began, which made it even more difficult for Jesse and her parents to be adequately fed. She married a World War I veteran who was 20 years older than she was, but his aggression uh, due to PTSD from trauma in the World War One, forced her to to divorce him. Divorced soon after Ann was born. So they moved in with Jesse's disabled father and her grandfather, who had never worked outside the home. Jesse worked at Pollen Industries in Huntington, West Virginia, to support, to help support the family during the World War Two. Anne will share the story of her mother in two sessions. Like I say, part one today and next week on Mother's Day, um, April 14th. Nice, it's not true. Next week on Mother's Day, we're going to say part two. As Jesse's story unfolds, you will see how these memories have come together to inspire Anne to create the American Rosie Movement, which honors all women who worked on the home front during World War II. Go ahead, Anne. It's all yours.
2: Oh, you,
5: girl. You muted Anne, there you go. So thanks so much, folks. Truly, folks, I consider this a red letter day because very honestly, when I started the work to interview Rosie the Riveters, it was 2008, I very seldom talked about my mother because people kept saying, um, you know... Are you really interested only in telling about your mother? Are you really interested in the roses? So it wasn't until now, after literally fifteen years of work with the Rosie the Riveters, that I have uh, essentially come down, uh, come around to the fact that I really need to talk about my mother because my formative years with my mother were very, very important. She was an excellent mother against really hard circumstances. One of the things that Charles alluded to there was that there was not enough food. So um, because my grandfather couldn't work and women, my grandmother was too old and essentially uh, women didn't work and my mother was the last of all the children. um, When my grandfather could not feed her, he asked uh, her older sister to take care of her and take my mother into her home in Gallipolis, Ohio. That's where my mother met my father, and uh, they married. And I was born then in 1939. So, understand that mother was born uh, at the start of World War II, and I was born then, uh, essentially just before World War. Excuse me. My mother was born World War One. I, I was born. Uh, at the beginning of World War II in Europe. Now, one of the things about my mother that I really feel is important for everybody to know is that she had such pride in uh, serving the country and she really, really was fascinated by education. So as a very young child, she would have me repeat uh, to her, it's a, a Abraham Lincoln quote, I will study and prepare my chance and someday I will study and prepare myself and someday my chance will come. I had no idea how important that would be to me, but here I am now, 84, and launching a new type of social movement that's called the American Rosie Movement. And it's all because my mother was a really good uh, early mother. I want to talk to you about different images that I have of mother. It's not just memories like I've been talking about, but actual memories. Um, realized that my grandfather had to send mother away because he couldn't feed her. But she came back after she left my father, who was aggressive and had been uh, essentially traumatized by World War I. Um, so she then comes back home with my grandparents to live with my grandparents. and. Instead of there being one less person to feed, there were three more people to feed. My mother, myself, and my sister was born right after we moved in with my grandparents. So it was tough times. And of course, the Great Depression came when mother was 10 and West Virginia was not yet through that Great Depression. So the need for food was really important. Um, Mother went to work in Poland Industries, She did not wear a uniform. She did not wear, you know, overalls or a bandana or any of that. And one of my very, very first memories of mother was we would sleep, we slept together in a twin bed. She put me against the wall and she slept on the outside. I don't know how she did, except that she was so skinny. But um, when the alarm would go off in the morning and she had to go to work, she would get up and go to the closet, pick a dress for the day, get her princess slip, put on her princess slip. But before that, of course, she would take off her 90. And we were, I was very, very shocked as a child to look at her skin and bones. You could see every rib in her uh, chest, and you certainly could see her shoulder bones and even her hip bones. So she'd put on that princess slip, a sickly slip. Then she'd choose a dress that she'd made for the day. She'd sh- choose the one that she was in the mood for. Then she'd turn around and ask me to tell her whether or not her slip was showing. If your slip was showing, that was a, a very shameful thing. <laughs> and um, then she'd go over to the dressing table and uh, she would start then getting herself to look Good, and she really was beautiful by the time she finished. Charles, do you have some pictures there to show mother?
4: I wasn't prepared. Uh, Let me see if I can go through.
5: You go ahead and and pull them up and I'll keep talking, okay? But uh, she had cold black hair and vivid blue eyes and she would sit down at that dressing table, brush her hair forward, and then brush it back and put it in a bun. And then she'd start applying her makeup, her uh, mascara and uh, powder from a a beautiful little box. I can still smell it. And um, then she'd put on a bright red lipstick. Her fingernail polish was she put on on the weekends and she'd let me dab any chips and blow on it. And then, her fingernails were dry she would then dress me for the day and then we would go out onto the front porch and that's when she would get down literally crouch down and look me in the eye and say you have to be strong I have to be strong we have to do what we have to do and I'll be gone but I'll be back this evening now sometimes when she came back she was sick because she was inspecting lenses for uh, gun scopes, uh, periscopes, um, binoculars, et cetera. And so they put her at the end because she had perfect vision and she could check to see flaws that others couldn't see, even with a machine. So that would make her dizzy and she would come home vomiting. And I never could understand as a child how skinny she was because she was so incredibly malnourished, um, it it seemed to me cruel for her to go to work every day, but she was proud to do it. So she walked down those steps, uh, all dolled up, uh, literally in high heel shoes, go down the steps and open the gate, turn left, and go toward the the, uh, hill that had the factory, which I didn't even see until I was in my 60s. I never saw that space. In any event, that's my first memory of my mother with the war. Now, VJ Day was just after I turned six. So Victory Japan Day, of course, was the end of the war. And I remember that day, and I've written a chapter for a book, and someday I need to write a a book about my mother and my story. Uh, But that, victory japan day was a really really special day where horns were honking and uh, the um, factory whistles were blowing etc etc now mother then remarried when i was eight she married a person i begged her not to marry at first i thought he was very special he was handsome he was a lawyer and he had immaculate clothing but I began to sense something was wrong, but she did marry him, and it turns out that unfortunately I was right, and um, he he basically didn't speak to me again from from the time I was ten years old, and uh, he never introduced us to his family, and mother started uh, getting depressed really at that time, so Leah and I, my sister Leah, precious precious person. we're going to be strong and help her. so we were convinced that if we talked her into going to Marshall University and getting a degree, um she could get a degree in teaching art and physics. so she was intelligent and she was very artistic. Um, and we were just about com- to convince her that we didn't need her to you know take care of us all day long. She could go to school when um she called me into the the uh, dining room one day. The kitchen was right off the dining room, but there were no chairs there. So she called me into the dining room. I knew something was up. Uh, and she said to me, uh, I have something really, really serious, and I want you to be prepared for bad news. And I couldn't imagine what it was. And she said that my sister Leah was diagnosed with her cancer, <laughs> and that uh, a hairy birthmark on her neck would probably uh, had metastasized and the cancer was going into her brain and her lungs, etc. Um, it was a, an incredible, incredible shock. And at that point, I realized that mother and I had to go on together that no matter what, we were basically alone with each other. And I didn't know how in the world I was going to be able to help her, but I knew that I, I needed to basically help her carry the burden. Now, next week, I'm gonna tell you about a tragedy that my mother had. And then uh, a very, very important event that happened to be in Japan that involves my mother. And then um, how that ad that that he just showed, that that Charles just showed, uh, essentially is the ad that started the American Rosie movement. That's my grandfather there on the left. If you can see how skinny he was, he was giving up food so that we could eat. That's my sister Leah, uh, still the angel of my life and me. um, And essentially the... The uh, neighbor, another neighborhood. And that's the first mo- picture that I have of my mother uh, taking a picture of me. And of course, I still love flowers. So I just love that picture. That's you there, Anne, the bottom yeah, picture? Yeah, that's me as a child. You're a cute little baby girl. Oh, I, I'm, right here, right? Uh, <laughs> say uh-huh. the, I didn't hear you, Charles. At the bottom, the last picture. That's this her. Girl, but this
4: is you too. Yeah, yeah
2: that's her too.
5: The biggest girl there is me and the little girl oh. was my sister, Leah.
4: Oh, sisters. Yeah.
5: And then that's my grandfather. And the reason I put him in there is he was so really important to me. Realize he was deaf <laughs> and had missing fingers from a railroad accident. But he kept a garden that was it was called a victory garden, but he he built a house on two lots so he could grow food for the family. And by the time I came along, he was Uh, almost 80 so Hmm. for whatever uh, he and I were really really close and people couldn't understand why a toddler two and a half years old would be following around a deaf old man when we couldn't talk but I think he's the one who put the love of plants and um, essentially nature I I have a very strong love of of plants and nature so that I'm going to tell you till today uh, today and next week uh, I will be uh, focusing on that picture that Charles showed, where oh. the, the the ad that came out in the Charleston, West Virginia newspaper that brought us our very first roses uh, was my mother's picture, and the newspaper um, advertised.